Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 101 of the Combinate podcast. It feels really good to be over the hump of episode 100, and we have a really good one today. I was joined by Megan Paladano, who is the head of clinical and regulatory affairs at Vaxis. In this episode, Megan walks through microarray patches and needle-free injections. She talks about the use of EPARs and OSPARs in regulatory strategy preparation. And she talks about combination products, clinical trials, and regulatory pathways in Australia. I hope you enjoy this episode with Megan. Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sedate. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery. So this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen. And together, we can simplify by combinating. My area was looking at cell culture models, so looking at Herg cell interaction or Herg receptor interaction, and also looking at, I set up a CACO2 cell model, which was looking at transport of drugs across the gastrointestinal tract at a cell-based level. And after about three and a half years, I got sick of doing that. And I realized I didn't want to be based in a lab anymore. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I did recall though, that when I'd been at Cognetics in Salt Lake City, they did have one regulatory person and I was always interested in what he was doing. And so I was lucky that where I was based at Parkville at Monash University, CSL was just next door. And so CSL is a pretty large and significant, probably Australia's largest biotech or pharmaceutical company, and it's now a global company. It's based out of Australia. Yes. Yeah, so CSL, or I think they, CSL there's multiple arms now. There's CSL bearing. They've just taken over V4. There's also, so the Parkville site is called, it's the Curus. So that's where the flu vaccine is actually manufactured. Well, the drug substance is manufactured at Parkville. So I was lucky enough to get an entry-level regulatory affairs position at CSL where I worked on flu vaccine. That's what most of us did at Parkville. But in hindsight, it was an amazing experience to work at a manufacturing site, which I think is quite rare in Australia for people to actually get reg regulatory experience where they're actually working alongside the validation team, the manufacturing team, the stability team. So I spent close to eight years there before I moved on to work as a consultant. And I've since then worked at many small and large biotech companies, worked for Leo Pharma. I've worked as a consultant at Pfizer, worked for big and small companies across my career, looking at medical devices and pharmaceuticals and vaccines. And I guess when I heard about Vaxis and I moved to Brisbane, it was, it was a pretty good match for my background, looking at vaccines and combining them with the medical device. 
you moved it to combination products more recently. How have you been finding that? Yeah, obviously I've worked on pre-filled syringes and more simple combination products, but this is my first time since working at Vaxis that I've really had this experience of a novel combination product. It, I guess there's a lot to consider. It's a complicated product that we make at Vaxis. So it has been a quite a steep learning curve. And also when you look at the microarray patch that Vaxis is trying to develop, there's no specific guidelines on how to do this. There's no other companies out there who have registered a microarray patch product. So we're all in clinical development at the moment. And there's many different types as well. Vaxis has, is a solid microneedle. So we coat the microneedles, but there are other developers out there who have dissolving microarray patches. So the projections either contain, containing the vaccine are dissolvable. So I guess due to the lack of guidelines that are specific for microarray patches, we constantly have to look at what other guidelines are out there, I guess, with respect to transdermal or topical products, vaccine guidelines. So we're constantly having to look at what's out there that we can apply to the development of our product. So I guess on top of it being a, a combination product, which already has a lot of regulatory considerations, we then have to factor in that that there's nothing really specifically out there to help guide us in the development of our product. Can you elaborate more on that? So yeah, you're right. We, we do have to call on other guidelines and, and previous experience, really. That's what a lot of it comes down to. And thinking about making decisions in development that you think will be aligned with how a regulator is going to review our product. So it's very much thinking about other or similar products or other products that have been approved by a novel route of administration and looking at those to see what can we learn from other products that have been innovative in, in the space. I read a lot of EPARs, so the European assessment reports, I look at OSPARs, which are Australian assessment reports. But I think really critical to the development of our novel technology is the ability to interact with regulators and to make sure that the development and how we're conducting the development of our product is aligned with their expectations. Although at this point in time, I'm not sure that they're even sure what their expectations are. So it's really about interacting as early as possible and trying to figure this out together. And I think we have had some interaction with the US FDA at this point in time, and they've been very helpful in responding to our questions and to, to answering and, and giving us the detail we need to be able to continue the progression of our product. The review of the EPARs and the OSPARs, what's the benefit and do what's the value there? So when you look at, I guess, from a formulation perspective, what testing, so what are the finished product specifications for a product like ours look like? So obviously there's guidelines out there that tell you how what those tests need to be for a vaccine that we can draw on. But then we have to consider the device aspects as well. So I often look at other products that may have a similar formulation or a novel adjuvant and look at what testing they were doing or what the regulator had told them they needed to look at. So I guess and mainly... And it's all public, public access. Yes. Yeah. All public access. And it's EPAR, Australian right. PARs. So the OSPAR is A-U-S-P-A-R, 
and the European is EPAR. And it would so, include things like release testing and so on. So a lot of it is redacted. And not a lot of it, but a there are portions of the OzPars and the ECARs that are redacted, but you can still get a lot of information from there. And so you can see, so they're quite detailed in documents. You can, so they're broken down into quality, non-clinical and clinical aspects. So you can see any issues that the regulators had, how the company may have been asked to address those issues. So it's just a really good starting place to, to see what regulatory expectations might be for a specific product that's been registered. Interesting. And so you were going back, you were talking about the kind of novel route of administration. And then we mentioned the, the Monash University, when you were doing the cell culture stuff, it sounded like you were also trying to evaluate PK depending on route. Has, has there a connection there? Uh, so has your experience in the past helped you in that way? I think so. Yeah, definitely. When I started at the pharmacy college, I guess my studies and my work at Salt Lake City had been really focused on pharmacology up to that point. So I had no idea about the complexity of how you actually get a drug to where it needs to be in the body. And so by working at the pharmacy college, I guess it broadened my horizons to understand the formulation that are important metabolism are important, pharmacokinetics are important. So there's all these other aspects around drug development rather than it just being able to work at the side of action. So it really did broaden my thinking. And I guess it has helped me in my, all of the roles that I've had really. When I, when you do an undergraduate degree or even in, in my PhD, like I said, that was more pharmacology based. I had no idea what pharmacokinetics was. I'd never studied that at university. And yeah, it was great training on the job training and gave me good skills and insight into what was to come. And I guess looking at drug and Herg channel interaction now, I, at the time I didn't know why I was doing these electrophysiology assays. I just knew they were horrible and I hated doing them. But now I see that for certain compounds during development, you need safety pharmacology studies. You need to understand these interactions. So. Yeah, I guess looking back, I've been lucky that everything's, all my previous roles have helped me to understand the, the work I need to do right now and to be able to develop this novel technology. And you were talking about with the, with the new device that you're working on, that there's dissolving and dry. What's the, mm -hmm. can you walk through the difference? So. Vaxis technology takes a solid microarray patch and it's housed within an applicator. And so when you press the button on the top of the applicator and you hold it against the arm, the shoulder, the deltoid, the patch will enter the skin. The microarray projections will enter the skin and we hold the patch there for a little, a few seconds and the vaccine dissolves into the skin intradermally. So the vaccine's delivered intradermally. Whereas with other technologies that other companies are developing similar to ours, the actual microarray projections will dissolve into the skin. So they have a longer wear time, I think maybe around five minutes. And then I think the adhesive that the projections were attached to, that's removed from the skin. So there's different types of microarray patch technologies that different companies are developing. And the way that the drug gets on the patch itself? 
So at Vaxis, we dry the very small volumes of vaccine onto the microarray catch projections. And so that's why it has potential for use in countries where cold chain could be an issue because the vaccine's dried. So we have some preliminary stability data, which shows that we can store the vaccines at, at much higher temperatures, not just at two to eight. So there is potential for it to be used outside of cold chain. Uh, and we believe that this is because of the drying of the vaccine onto the patch. And so it's it, the microarray is coated liquid and then it goes through like a lyo process? It's almost like a, a it's not lyophilized, but it's similar. Interesting. And so there's a lot of challenges there, right? There's the administration route challenge. There's the delivering dry challenge. There's the combination product challenge. Where do they stack up from a regulatory standpoint? Which one's the toughest? I often get asked if the vaccine we're putting onto our patch is already registered. Approved, yeah. Does that mean we can have a much faster regulatory path to approval? And I think the answer is no. So when you look at, you just highlighted all the changes that we're making to a registered vaccine. So there are some formulation changes. There's dosage form changes. There's route of administration changes. There's container closure changes. So we're making quite a number of changes to that product. I think pretty much maybe from a non-clinical study perspective, you perhaps could maybe do less toxicology studies if the vaccine has been approved and has been on the market for many years. Systemic safety of it has been established potentially. We still need to look at the local safety and tolerability because we're giving it intradermally. So we still need to be able to understand that when it's given intradermally, that vaccine isn't going to have any untoward safety effects that, that weren't already envisaged. So we still need to do toxicology studies, but potentially we could do some, a reduced subset if the vaccine has been registered and has a, a well-established safety profile already. So I guess we are pretty much back to scratch though, in terms of development, even when we're looking at a putting registered vaccines onto our patch. And uh, we've seen, I guess the FDA have presented it at microneedle and microarray patch conferences where they've made that message very clear. Oh, and which, what message? Just the fact that it's a new product. I see. Okay. So you're saying mm. that changes make it effectively new. As far as the clinical study bit, so you were talking about it there at the end, the container closure changed, formulation changed, the route of administration changed. What does a clinical study look like for, do you have to establish the efficacy of both the drug and the device? Like, how does that work? So our clinical studies that we've conducted to date have all been phase one clinical studies. So at the moment, we're only looking at safety and tolerability as primary endpoints from our studies, but we do look at immunogenicity from a secondary endpoint perspective. So I guess as we progress, we will definitely need to demonstrate that the vaccine works, that we can elicit immune responses, potentially that are comparable to intramuscular injection. And a lot of our studies have used registered vaccines as a comparator, intramuscular comparator in our studies. But yes, we will need to ensure that the device is working as intended to deliver that vaccine. And we're also conducting human factor studies to look at the usability 
of the product and to ensure that the labeling and the instructions for use are designed appropriately so that the product can be used. So I guess that's a different aspect than what I've had to consider before when working on other vaccine products. So it definitely is more complicated and there's far more considerations to, to take into perspective. And then what about the container closure? Mm -hmm. So our microarray patch is housed in an applicator. And so it becomes the container for our product. And it has, it has a hollow inside where the map sits. And then there's a foil lid that goes over the top. So it almost looks like a hockey puck, I guess you could say, although the interior of it isn't solid. And that's where the patch sits. And then there's a foil seal over the top. So all of the applicator aspects and the foil pouch become our container closure. I think the difficulty with delivery platforms is typically devices aren't introduced, at least in my experience for injectables, the device wouldn't be introduced until uh, either late phase two or phase three, because let's say you mentioned pre-built syringes earlier, there's maybe a less perceived risk of switching from a vial or vial kit to a pre-filled syringe from a performance and efficacy standpoint, you still have to prove it, but there might be more appetite there if the vials are more sourceable. Whereas how do you distinguish the efficacy of moving forward of the applicator's ability to deliver and the different drugs? Like, like a, if I were to put a pre-filled syringe in a study, I'd say this pre-filled syringe can deliver drugs of this attribute, viscosity, pH, and so on. It can't do maybe frozen drugs. It can't do, you can tie constraints to it and not have to repeat on the basis of just clinical. Whereas, you know, with what you're describing, how do you separate the performance of the device element with the, what it's coded with to platform it? So we do have an applicator performance test that we conduct during development of our product. So we ensure that the applicator is working as intended. Although before we get to clinical studies and during early stage research and development, we do conduct delivery studies where we're looking at the combination of the vaccine formulation on the applicator. And we look at how this vaccine is being delivered into the skin. So I guess early stage, we're assessing that device performance by ensuring that the vaccine is getting to where it needs to be. And so I think in the past, we've been able to make changes to our microarray patch, changing the projection number, changing the, the morphology of the projections. With the applicator, we've been able to look at different trigger force. So to make sure that the map is, is being actuated at the correct speed that we need to be able to deliver that vaccine into the skin. So there's been certain aspects of the applicator and the map combination that we can alter to ensure that the vaccine is being delivered where it needs to go into the skin. So there are a number of R&D steps that we do to make sure that we're optimizing the ability to be able to deliver that vaccine where it needs to be. But you are still having in cases to start with phase one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I think, maybe a unique distinction given the delivery that injectables, at least liquid sterile injectables, 
in many cases, mm-hmm. a phase one wouldn't use the combination product. Interesting. What about clinical studies in Australia? They're different than everywhere else, right? Yeah, in Australia, we have a scheme, a clinical trial scheme called CTN scheme, which is a clinical trial notification or a clinical trial application. Certain, so depending on the type of product that you're wanting to put into a clinic, you have to either go via the CTN or the CTA, the clinical trial application pathway. Usually the CTA pathway is for more products like gene therapies or cell, stem cell therapies. So the majority of clinical studies in Australia for products like Vaxis anyway are conducted through the CTN pathway. This is simply a notification to the TGA where we fill out a form online and we still, of course, need to get ethics approval to conduct the study. And I guess the, the regulation or the, I guess the ensuring that you're doing your study in accordance with TGA requirements is more put back onto the sponsor. So we actually don't have to submit any regulatory applications, nothing equivalent of an IND or an IMPD to the TGA. So as long as you've notified the TGA that the trial will be conducted and you've already, you've sought ethics approval, you can conduct your study. So I think Australia is a very attractive place to conduct clinical studies for these reasons. It's really easy and quick to get your clinical study up and running. And so I guess many small companies, even global companies conduct clinical studies in Australia for that reason. And as well, the data that, you know, Australia is a well-recognized country in terms of the regulatory standards that we work towards. Obviously all our studies must be done under GCP. So the data that is coming out of our studies, I think is equivalent to other countries like Europe and the US, FDA, the US. So we, I guess that's all those things combined make Australia a very attractive place to do clinical studies. And that definitely means that we don't have to submit a regulatory application. So that means that the study can be done or can be initiated far quicker than it could have been in other parts of the world. And that's both for drug and device? So there recently was a consultation that the TGA had reviewed where they were, they were considering or they asked industry about whether medical device clinical studies needed to go via the CTA pathway, which is where the TGA actually does evaluate your application. But I was just reading something yesterday that said that this wouldn't be happening, this change wouldn't be occurring. So medical device clinical studies can still be done under a CTN pathway. However, they will be included as part of the TGA inspectoral scheme. So that's just allows the TGA to come and inspect the clinical study that you're doing and to request information about how your study is being conducted. And then the CTA is only used for a pivotal study? It seems to be used more for really novel types of products like gene therapies and stem cell therapies. They're usually... But if you're developing a vaccine, you wouldn't go down the CTA pathway. And as well, if you, I think you want to do clinical studies with gene therapies, you also need OGTR approval. Uh, so you worked with FDA and EMI, presume, right? Yes, I have various stages of my career. Are there any other big differences from how TGA approaches things that FDA, EMA, competent authorities don't. The TGA largely follows what the EMA does. We actually, the TGA. Well, oh, the FDA. 
Yes, more than FDA. We adopt a lot of the EMA guidelines, the TGA does, but we also have, that's not to say that we don't follow or we are definitely aligned with the FDA as well. We have different pathways in Australia to get a product approved. There's two pathways called the core A and the core B pathway. So core is the comparable overseas regulator. So if you've recently appro received approval in either the US or the EU or one of the other company, countries listed on the comparable overseas regulator list, it really will expedite approval of your product in Australia. And the core B pathway is where you've had approval, I think, slightly more time has passed since you've received approval by that comparable overseas regulator. So we definitely acknowledge and align with other global regulators. And there's also a pathway that's available in Australia through the Access Consortium. So the Access Consortium countries are Australia, Canada, Singapore, Switzerland, and the UK MHRA also joined. So this is a pathway where you submit the pretty much the same dossier. I guess with the exception of module one that is regionally specific, you submit the same application to all of those regulators at the same time, and you can submit to a subset of those countries. You don't have to submit to all of them at once. And, and then each country, so it's almost like a work sharing initiative where one country will review module three, one will look at four and one will look at five, but then they split out into their national procedure. So you can potentially receive registration in all of these countries at around the same time, but they can also make their own independent decisions as well. So that's a really attractive way of getting your product registered in multiple countries at the same time. And the reason this alliance was formed is because these countries all have very similar approach to the regulation of products. And that's both on the device and drug side or only the drug side? So it is a little bit more complicated on the combination product side because how all of these countries are going to approach review of, say, a product like Vaxis is developing a combination product, it can be a little bit different. So we're actually looking at that at the moment to understand, okay, which countries out of this subset align more closely than others because I think countries like Switzerland are obviously aligned more to the European system where you have to get a notified body opinion. Whereas in Australia, that's, that's not part of our process. So we're trying to look at which of those countries, if we did want to go down this pathway, which of those countries we would pick and which of them have a more aligned regulatory process for evaluating a combination product. So it definitely becomes more complicated when you introduce a combination product like ours. Are there any other big differences between the way the Australian approaches from rest of the world? I think the other main difference is the fact that small companies, large companies, we don't developing novel products in Australia. We often have to go to the US FDA or the EMA to seek scientific advice or pre-IND feedback. The TGA doesn't do that. We have in Australia what's called a pre-submission meeting. So this is normally when you're, you would have this meeting with the TGA when you're ready to submit your registration application and you might have some questions or you just want to inform them about the application that they're about to receive. So they don't give you that early stage advice into how to d develop or to, uh, to guide you in the things that you need to consider when developing your product. So it's quite common for 
biotech companies in Australia to, to go and speak to the US FDA or the EMA to be able to get this early input and scientific advice into how we develop our products. And so the pre-sub meeting happens pretty late stage. It's usually after you've collected phase three data. I see. Where, where do you go from here? Vaxis is a very busy place. We have a lot of programs underway at the moment. So we will be initiating more clinical studies, another clinical study next year. And so this is most likely will be with our BARDA funded project. So we have high hopes that we can register this product one day, hopefully in the not too distant future. We believe that we can make a, a change to how vaccines are delivered and that we can improve global access of vaccines. Like I mentioned earlier with the drying, the potential lack of need for cold chain storage, we can develop a product that can be rolled out globally to parts of the world that maybe otherwise wouldn't see vaccines. And so we also have a program running with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who are obviously very interested in vaccine access and equity globally. It's a, it's a very exciting company to be part of. And, but it's also challenging what we're trying to do. No one's done before, but that's what's motivating. I think. Where can people find you? I can be reached through LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you for coming on the show, Megan. This is awesome. Thank you for having me, Subi.